Good morning, Restoration Anglican. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning, if this counts as being with you. Uh, this is this morning marks a first for me. I have the opportunity to preach two different sermons to two different congregations at the exact same time. It's really a marvel, uh, something I could not have done if we hadn't all been constrained to use this kind of technology. But I'm glad to be here. We are crossing the threshold as the Christian Church into Holy Week, and it's a strange moment to do it because there is so much that makes it hard to remember that it is Holy Week. So what I want to do this morning is retell a story. Tell the story that makes this Holy Week. We don't make it Holy Week. God did that. We enter into and try to remember the reality that this is Holy Week. Whatever we are feeling, whatever we are facing, even in a medium that feels very unholy sometimes, this is what we are doing and what we are about as the Christian church does not change. When Jesus crested that hill and came down into Jerusalem on the Palm Sunday that we are celebrating today, that occurred on a Palm Sunday so many years before, he crested that hill at the absolute height of his popularity. He was from the north of Israel, up a tiny village called Nazareth, and he spent almost the entirety of his life up north. His ministry years centered around the Sea of Galilee up north, a calm, beautiful, rural area. It remains that to this day. Largely, he went south, maybe only for the feasts, one, two, three times a year with his family and friends. Up north, it's a small life. Microeconomics rule the town. For three years, he preached or taught up north, and he was a huge hit, a traveling rabbi who would go into the synagogues in different places. The center of his ministry was Capernaum, right on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Of course, the draw to him was not just his teaching as a rabbi, but this was a man, it was rumored, who healed people everywhere he went. Remember, these are small towns, 100, 200 people. Uh, Jesus was not uh, healing anonymously in cities of millions and living off these rumors of wonder-working. You know the guy who was born blind. You know the girl who broke her leg and it never set right and she never could walk. And now you see her running. You know the deaf, the mute. A hoax healer would not go very far in the social world of the Galilee. Now, the south of Israel was like a different world entirely. In the south, this was the center of commerce. Larger cities, more diverse economy. Jerusalem was the center of power and influence there in the south. It's where the temple sat, of course. And so it was the holiest city of the Holy Land. In Jerusalem, as it is now, you would rub shoulders with all kinds of people there and really rub shoulders with them. The streets were no wider than the living room you're probably sitting in right now. Uh, and if Jerusalem proper had maybe 20, 25,000 people in it, it's hard to know at normal times, uh, you also had all the region around that was dotted. All the hills surrounding Jerusalem were dotted with villages, almost suburbs, where people could make their way easily into the temple for morning, evening prayers, go back to their hometowns at night, and so on. 
But when the feasts came, pilgrims descended on Jerusalem from the north, from further south, from all over the Mediterranean. They would flow into Jerusalem, filling the city itself, overflowing the city. The valley all around Jerusalem would be filled with tents, the hills and all the villages around. Estimates are hard, but it was a lot of people. 100, 200, some have suggested 250,000 for a feast like Passover. For a city that's meant to hold 25,000 when it's full. And the political tensions that were somewhat more remote when you were up in the rural north could be felt, could be seen in Jerusalem. You could not escape them when you were there. The enormous Roman fortress of Antonia loomed there. It was built just a bit higher than any other building in Jerusalem, the temple included. It was a sign of Roman power. And on feast days, especially on Passover feast days, where, you'll remember, Israel celebrated being freed from the hand of an oppressive empire, the Roman Empire stocked the fortress of Antonia with two or three times the number of soldiers it normally held. Pilate, who ran the city as governor for the Romans, knew that a riot would be bloody and the end of his political career. Now, if some of Jesus' other trips to Jerusalem were done in secret during his ministry, this year, Jesus had made the long walk from up in the north all the way to Jerusalem entirely in the open. More than that, everywhere he went, he drew attention and seemed to make a point of drawing attention. He walked into Jericho, the largest city on the road south, and the crowd already around him could barely squeeze through the city with him. At the gates of Jerusalem, the most public place in the city, Jesus saw some who were lame and right in front of everybody made them walk. A blind man, too, was over on the side calling out, Jesus, son of David, messianic language, a language for kings. Have mercy on me. And right in front of everyone, Jesus healed him. Imagine the whisperings, the excitements of the crowd. They had already on one occasion at least wanted to make a king of Jesus. And now they were marching to Jerusalem with him at their head. One guy, Zacchaeus, just wanted to see Jesus walking through the streets of his town. But had to climb on a tree just to see over the crowds as he passed by. Every town Jesus passed through, the crowd grew. This would have been normal anyway, even in normal years, uh, because the Passover, pilgrims traveled together in large groups. It was safer and probably a lot more fun. But this year, thousands, tens of thousands maybe, by the end, singing, talking, wondering, if you live somewhere between Galilee and Jerusalem, and this crowd with all of this wonder working about this figure, and you weren't sure whether you'd go to the feast or not before this, now you knew there was no way you were going to miss this. And alone in the entire crowd, Jesus was the only one who understood what this feast would mean, what it would mean for him to come into Jerusalem as her king. 
So when the crowd arrived to the outskirts of Jerusalem in time for the Sabbath, Saturday, Jesus stayed with his closest followers at the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They lived in a small town, Bethany, just outside the city of Jerusalem, one of those dotted villages of suburbs. The crowds that had come down spent that Sabbath in the synagogues around, or maybe in the temple if they got there early, eating and feasting and talking with friends and family, other pilgrims from elsewhere, and from all the reports, they were sure this was the king, a new king marching on Jerusalem. So by Sunday, the first day of the week, this Palm Sunday, Jesus, Jerusalem was full to bursting. Hundreds of thousands of visitors, perhaps, pouring in. The valley outside Jerusalem filling with tents, and Jesus comes, taking a road around Bethany up to a hill and then coming straight down. Jerusalem opens up in front of you on the top of that hill. And he comes in, sends his disciples down to bring a donkey, riding on a donkey over this hill, famous, this hill, for its olives, called the Mount of Olives. The crowd was gathering around him now as he came down on this donkey, doing a, what was deliberate, and evoking in all of their minds these texts that they had grown up with from Zechariah, your king shall come to you, humble, riding on a donkey. We don't know who it was who first had the idea to wave palm branches or to cry out, the son of David is here, hail to the new king, but the cry caught on. And those who lived in Jerusalem, no doubt, uh, came to see the commotion. And the two crowds, the visitors and the pilgrims who had gathered all outside the city and the, those from inside the city coming out mingled there at the gates. And this chant rising up repeated, Hail to the king, hail to the new king, louder and louder. And there at the gates, those in power, the priests from the temple, the scribes, the leaders, they were nervous. Of course they were nervous. This was Passover. There's Antonia right there. And here is this crowd saying, hail to the new king. This rural rabbi from the north, no less, who didn't go to any of the Ivy League schools who had been upsetting the status quo. And they were singing about him as a new king. Tell these people to stop, they said to Jesus. And Jesus, riding right by them, looked and said, If they were to stop, the stones themselves would begin the cry. And so in he rode to Jerusalem, the new king arriving. From that moment on, throughout the week, Jesus was declaring war against those Jerusalem leaders. The first stop of this new king, as for most of the people, was, of course, the temple. He would have gone down, and there's pools where you would cleanse yourself, but right before the pools are marketplaces where people could come in and buy pigeons and so on for the sacrifices at the temple. But Jesus arrived at the crowded market area at the foot of the mount, and he begins throwing over the tables 
making a whip of a rope and whipping at people and scattering money. And no doubt crowds in those days did the same thing crowds in our day, duh, crowds in our day do when money gets scattered. Jesus was not downplaying the threat of a riot in this moment. If the fear was riot, he was actually stoking them. And from the temple itself, as he made his way up there, right under the nose of the fortress Antonia, the crowd began to chant again in the way that ancient crowds would, much like modern sports stadiums. But this chant was Hosanna to the son of David, the king, the king, the new king. Again, the leaders told Jesus, don't you hear what they're saying? Tell them to stop. I do hear what they're saying. And on he went. Each day that week had what seems like a fairly similar shape. Jesus spent the night with his friends in Bethany and then would come into the city in the morning, head to the temple for worship and to teach. It was the largest gathering place in the city by far, a huge open area. And then in the evenings, he would go back to Bethany to his friend's house. The main topic of Jesus' preaching this week, at least in the Gospels as they record it, fits this theme of his showdown with the priests and the leaders. They were, he said, men of unbelief, blind leading the blind. He defied them, their so-called authority, confounding them when they dared ask questions, calling the people to follow God, not these men, all on their own turf in the temple itself. And at the climax of it, in the midst of the great temple, he looked these men in the eye and before all of their friends, all the pilgrims whom they wanted to impress. Woe to you, you hypocrites. This was the week when Jesus knew his hour had come and he brought it about. No one takes my life from me, he said. I lay it down of my own accord. He was forcing the issue with these men, ripping off their masks of unbelief. They wanted to remain in power. They wanted their place honored. They had no real interest in this rabbi from the north, could care less about the healings. And so he forced the issue. Naked pride and anger took over. But the crowds protected him. The leaders dared not lay hands on him in public, not with this crowd right there. Finally, the Passover came, Thursday afternoon or evening, and Jesus ate in the city this time at another friend's house, as most of the pilgrims would want to do if they possibly could. So now Jerusalem was full, full we have these pictures in our mind of that last Passover meal, the Last Supper, as we call it, as a dark place, dim lighting, quiet, serious. Please try to put that out of your minds. Imagine what a city like that would be like when it was stuffed to overflowing with people feasting, singing, echoing everywhere on those small streets, every home filled to bursting, wine flowing and the joy that comes with that, meat being roasted and eaten. At some point during the festivities, Judas slipped away, 
through the streets that were no doubt crawling with revelers. And he found the leaders in their comfy digs in the temple complex. I know where you can find Jesus away from the crowds tonight, away from threat of any others except his closest disciples, he told them. We don't know why Judas did it. I wish I could ask him. But so it was that as Jesus and his disciples walked across the valley into the relative cool and calm of a garden on the Mount of Olives that they had crossed not even a week before, Judas was already marching out from the temple complex with a band of guards from there towards that garden. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what Judas was going to do. He knew that Judas would come to this place to take him. He knew all of it. And so he prayed. He knew what the next day was going to hold. Meanwhile, the disciples there in the garden, they had just eaten a big feast, drunk, no doubt, a good bit of wine. And so they did what most of us would do after all that excitement and all that food. Late at night, they nodded off. They get a bad rap for that. But what else would we do? That is, until they heard the group of men coming. Maybe they saw the torches come out through the gate that you can see very clearly from that garden. And they saw these men coming across the valley towards them. That Peter drew his sword to fight when they got there only emphasizes the idea of a riot, of a new king coming by force was not just present in the minds of the religious leaders and the temple guards. They grabbed him and hauled Jesus off to a trial as he brought peace and quelled any hint of rebellion or riot. It was to be a heresy trial, blasphemy against God. They pulled him first to one house, then another. They were cowards, knowing they dared not attempt such a trial during the day. False witnesses stood up and lied. And the greatest defense Jesus could have given was to remain silent. Let them try to find some way to appease their consciences. But finally, the high priest, tired of the witnesses, exasperated at it, said, I charge you under oath of the living God, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus, knowing that all things were given into his hand by the Father, answered them. That's how you say it. I will say even more that one day you will see me sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. He knew what that would provoke. Blasphemy, the high priest called out. He is worthy of death, they all shouted. Then they spit on him, slapped his face. And now Jesus remained silent, taking their abuse. But Jesus could not merely be put to death by a mob. They wanted to humiliate him publicly. He was to be crucified. He had to be crucified. People had to know that he was cursed by God. No Messiah could be crucified. Power to crucify, though, lay in the hands of the Roman government. Having the Romans do it also, of course, 
gave the leaders cover from the crowds who were still at this point sleeping in their beds. And so as dawn broke, no doubt people slept in the night after Passover. As dawn broke, they came to Pontius Pilate and sent Jesus in. Pilate initially was curious. Of course he was. Jesus was a famous figure. Pilate had heard the cries at the temple, heard about all the cries at the gate before. He wanted to know about this man. And so Jesus was shoved into Pilate's home, the courtyard, bruised from the punches he had received that night. There's spit still in his hair and his beard. But Jesus remained silent to Pilate's questions. Pilate was disappointed, but eventually going back and forth, Herod from Galilee was in town for the feast. So Pilate sent him to Herod, but Herod didn't know what to do with him, sent him back to Pilate. But soon Pilate's greatest fear began to grow. The small mob with the temple guards and the priests and the leaders there, they were squeezed into the quarters right outside of Pilate's courtyard were beginning to be restless and sound riotous themselves. If you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar's, someone said. And with that, they struck his most sensitive nerve. And so Pilate washed his hands of it all, as if that made him innocent, and gave Jesus over to be crucified. First, the soldiers beat Jesus again, publicly whipping him, as was the custom. They had already whipped him once, hoping some blood would satisfy, but it hadn't. And now is when they put that crown of thorns on his head, jabbing it down, put a purple cloak on his whipped back, spat more on him, taunting him, thinking themselves clever. Friends, behold the humility of God in this moment to take this abuse. And then they threw the crossbeam on his shoulders to carry a single straight piece of wood to be carried through the streets of Jerusalem, narrow streets crowded with people. And Jesus, tired, having lost a night of sleep, and not just lost it, but carrying all of this burden, having known what was to come, he was weak. No doubt the crowds in the streets watching him go by and the crowds out in the valley were wondering, some maybe even asking, who is that having to be crucified? There were, after all, two others also being crucified. Maybe they didn't even know it was Jesus until he was outside the city, hanging on the tree. His crime was posted, as was the custom, King of the Jews written right above his head, this most public place, right on the road, right outside the city, so everyone going in, everyone coming out, would see him naked, dying, weak. And on top of that, the mockery. A thief crucified right next to him, dying himself, mocking Jesus on whom angels fear to look. Even the priests joined in on the fun. Finally getting there, last word, calling out to the crowds around them, 
He saved others, but look, he can't save himself. Small men. Arrogant men. Jesus breathed his last on that Friday afternoon on the cross. By the Sabbath, Holy Saturday, what had been just a week before, a joyous feast of triumph for the disciples with everyone speaking and wondering and whispering, had now turned to silence, fear. They were now in danger of being charged with sedition, so they hid too. Until Sunday morning, the first day of the week, early, some of the women made their way to the tomb to spread ointment on the body, to weep, to prepare it properly for its long rest, to defile themselves as you do for those whom you love. But the tomb was empty. He is not here, they were told. And Mary Magdalene saw Jesus alive, strong. And she went and told the other disciples, and they came. He's alive again, she said. Over the next days they saw and they heard Jesus. Not just one of them, not just a couple of them, but a handful. And then over a dozen, and even more, seeing and witnessing to what they saw. He is alive, they said. And they began to think back on all the things he had said. What does it actually mean? that he was riding into Jerusalem as a king. Maybe it was not just Rome that he was meaning to defeat. And with that, the testimony of God's conquering of death began to be preached. The reality that has formed the backbone, the heartbeat, everything of the Church of Jesus Christ since that day began to be known and spread and whispered about and sung about. Do you see, I hope you do, why we are not the ones who make this Holy Week? It is Holy Week, whether we feel it or not, because we get stuck in a house, and honestly, every day feels pretty much like the day before. We don't make it Holy Week. God did that already for us. We celebrate it. When we are cooped up, we celebrate it. When we are with our friends and family, we celebrate it. When we are with the Lamb on the last day with all the saints, we celebrate it. Friends, behold what God has done. And remember, this is Holy Week.